0: Thank you, Will. I was thinking the questions that I've asked myself this weekend, how many Easter eggs can I eat before the children start to notice they're going missing? Who's going to win the Masters? Sorry if your money was on Tiger. Why did I agree to preach in the middle of a five-day bank holiday weekend? But one of the more serious questions that you might find yourself asking this Easter weekend is exactly the one Will has just posed to us. What is the point of the resurrection. What is the point of the resurrection? And if you're asking that question, I think you're probably in one of two groups of people. Uh, perhaps you're, you're what we might call a curious investigator, someone who's not a Christian, someone who's come here on Easter Sunday or tuned in to hear about this resurrection that Christians talk about, and you're really asking that question. What is the point of it? What's the big deal with the resurrection? And it's a really good question for you in that position to be asking. You're going to find that it brings you into what I would call contact with the uncomfortable supernatural, because there's lots of parts of Luke's gospel that we can accept as teaching, and there's lots of them that we can see even as miracles, perhaps, that we can accept. But it is the resurrection of Jesus that really brings us into contact and confronts us with the supernatural reality of the claims of Jesus Christ and the Christian gospel. Or if that's not you, perhaps you're a Christian or someone who's at least well-versed in theology and you understand, just as we saw in the little video, when Jesus died on the cross, He said those words, it is finished, and that all of the sin and all of the wrongdoing that we have amassed in our lives, God punished Jesus for. And God was satisfied with that and can offer us forgiveness. He knows the wrong has been punished and we can be forgiven and it is finished. So your question is, well, what is the point of the resurrection then? What is the point of it? Is it just a sort of a, a secondary afterthought, something that comes after the cross? So I hope as we look at this passage that we've already read and had open before us this evening that we will get at least some answers to that question. And if you have your Bible in front of you or one of the pew Bibles, do keep it open as we look down through the passage. And we see this second episode of a resurrection appearance of Jesus in Luke's gospel. We have the road to Emmaus, and we thought about that this morning when Jesus appears to two disciples journeying to Emmaus. And then what would seem to be very quickly afterwards, Jesus appears to his disciples in Jerusalem where they are gathered. And he talks to them, And there are three things that I think we can draw out of what he says to them that tell us about the resurrection. And the first one is this, the resurrection was a physical resurrection. Was a physical resurrection. Now, that's not where the disciples start. They're startled, they're frightened, because we're told, Luke tells us, they thought they saw a spirit. And there's really two options for what's happening with the disciples here. The first is what you would call mass hysteria which is this phenomenon where a group of people enter into a shared delusion. We don't know why it happens, but that's one possibility. Or the other possibility is the one that the disciples themselves think, this is a ghost, this is a a spirit, this is a phantom. And there certainly would have been some acceptance that spiritual appearances could happen. In the Old Testament, for instance, Saul goes to a necromancer who summons up the spirit of Samuel for him. That's perhaps what the disciples are thinking of here when they're terrified. They look at Jesus, and they see him, and they think it's a ghost. But we can agree from the passage that Jesus is really keen that they are not left with that impression. Look at what he says. See my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet, and while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, have you anything here to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it before them. So Jesus is trying really clearly to emphasize to the disciples that this is not a ghost. This is not some sort of spiritual projection that they are seeing. This is his real physical body that they have known for the last three years back in front of them from the dead again. And it's interesting, isn't it, in the two appearances that Luke records of Jesus post-resurrection, he eats something. The Lord eats something in both of them. On the road to Emmaus, he eats bread, and with the disciples, he eats fish. And I think in Luke's mind, that is a callback to one of the most famous miracles that Jesus did. There's the feeding of the 5,000, when he took the bread and the fish from this little boy's lunchbox, and miraculously, he multiplied it and fed 5,000 people. And it was after that miraculous feeding that Peter says, you are the Christ of God. There was something in the Lord taking the bread and the fish and doing that miracle with it that helped the disciples to see a little bit more of who Jesus really was. And as we come to the close of the gospel again, we find that it's through bread and fish that the Lord's followers come to an even fuller understanding of who He is and what He has accomplished. So why was Jesus so keen that the disciples were certain that this was a physical resurrection? Why is that so important to him? I think there's a few reasons. The first thing that it does is it affirms the goodness of God's creation. It's very easy to fall into a trap in pagan spirituality, in different religious worldviews, and even in Christianity to a mindset where the spiritual things are good and the physical things are somehow less and bad. And we want to try and get away from the the physical things and up into the spiritual realm up here. I wonder how you picture yourself in, in the eternal state in the life after. You might perhaps look like yourself, but I suspect like me, you have a bit of a vague and floaty notion of what eternal life looks like. It's not a lot of walls in heaven in my mind and there's a slightly yellow tinge to everything and it's all quite insubstantial. Jesus in his resurrection had not finally been freed from the constraints of of a material body and, and moved into some pure spiritual life. He was physically resurrected in the body that he had inhabited for the 33 years preceding it. Because we're told in the Bible that when God created the world, he looked at it and he saw that it was very good. And it was the defiance and the rebellion of humans in what we call the fall, where we sinned, where we turned away from God, that has left that good world in the state that we see it today, corrupt, troubled with sickness and natural disaster and evil and death And that's what God told the first humans. The the sign of their obedience was really simple. They had this beautiful garden to live in, and God put one tree in it, and He said, you can eat anything you want. Don't Don't eat from that one tree. Just don't do it. For the day that you eat from that fruit, you will surely die. And that's what they did. So the fact that Jesus was resurrected in a physical body affirms that God's creation was good was not a mistake or a misstep that God looked at now and thought, do you know what? We shouldn't have made a physical world, we should have actually just done something spiritual. So the physical resurrection of Jesus affirms the goodness of God's creation. And the second thing it does is it highlights for us or it shows us God's redemptive intention. What is God planning to do with this broken world? See, Jesus' resurrection was not just someone who had died coming back to life. That had happened before. In fact, probably just two weeks previously, as we thought in January, Jesus had called his dear friend Lazarus out of the tomb and back to life. But as we thought in January when we talked about that, Lazarus was still wrapped in the clothes of death. He came out of the grave, but he still had the grave clothes on him because Lazarus got sick and died again. That is a different type of resurrection to what happened to Jesus. Jesus was brought back never to die again in a redeemed or in a, in a transformed resurrection body, we should say. And that resurrection of Jesus is what the New Testament later goes on to call the first fruits of those who have died, the first fruits of the resurrection. And the idea of first fruits is exactly what it sounds like. If you're a farmer, um, you wait all season long, you tend the plants, you weed the plants, you spray the plants, you do all of the things that you do for the plants, and then at the end of the season, the first little fruits appear. And in the life of the people of Israel, they actually had a festival to celebrate that, to celebrate that the harvest was coming, because when they saw that first little crop, they knew that harvest was coming. In this part of the world, it's probably the blackberries for us, isn't it? When the blackberries start to turn in the hedgerows, we know that harvest is coming. Jesus' resurrection was the first fruits of what God was doing in redeeming this world. God intends to take what has been broken and destroyed by the fall and remake it and renew it and redeem it, making it once again what it should have been from the beginning. Jesus says earlier in his life, Behold, I am making all things new. And here we see the first true example of what that looks like. It also motivates resurrection life in us when we understand that Jesus' resurrection was a physical resurrection. Paul writes in the Corinthians a really long chapter on resurrection in, in 1 Corinthians 15, this huge chapter about resurrections, the longest treatment of the idea of resurrection in the Bible. And at the end of this whole treatment about the fact that when we die, we're gonna be raised again, just like Jesus was raised again, we will be physically resurrected. What is Paul's concluding point to the people he's writing to? Is it sit back, put your feet up, don't worry? It's not. Paul, after talking about the future that we have, the certainty of our resurrection coming, he says, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. So for Paul, the reality of physical resurrection led to resurrection life and resurrection labor in our lives today. As one person put it so eloquently, the point of the resurrection, as Paul has been arguing throughout the letter, is that the present bodily life is not valueless just because it will die. God will raise it to a new life. What you do with your body in the present matters because God has a great future in store for it. And if this applies to ethics, it certainly also applies to the various vocations to which God's people are called. What you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, all these things will last into God's future. They are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable, until the day when we leave it behind altogether. This is the logic of the mission of God, God's recreation of His wonderful world, which has begun with the resurrection of Jesus and continues as God's people live in the risen Christ and in the power of His Spirit, means that we, what we do in Christ and by the Spirit in the present is not wasted. It will last all the way into God's new world. So the reality that Jesus was physically resurrected from the dead stimulates resurrection life and resurrection activity in us, because we know that God is redeeming. And finally, I think it helps us when we really understand the miraculous nature of that, that a man came back from the dead in a body that was no longer going to be subject to sickness and death and decay, that we understand the full extent of the resurrection power that is at work within us. The New Testament talks about God's spirit working within us, God's power working within us. But it's often hard to really understand what that means or picture what, what, what does that actually look like or how much power is there? Well, Paul again writes to the Ephesians and he tells them, he prays for you. I pray for you that you would know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. That same power that raised the Lord from the dead to life is at work within you and me as followers of Jesus Christ. That same power is transforming our characters. That same power gives us the courage and the desire to do what is right. It gives us the strength to resist sin That is the power that is at work within us. So the first thing the Lord wants his disciples to understand is that the resurrection was a physical resurrection. This wasn't some sort of spiritual or ghostly appearance. This was the Lord's body physically resurrected and renewed as his resurrected body. The Lord's resurrection was a physical resurrection. Then he goes on and he talks to them again and he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead. So the second thing the Lord wants them to understand is that the resurrection was an expected resurrection. It's possible to have a slightly mistaken view of the resurrection, to look at it that there was some sort of a pitched battle between good and evil, and Jesus was fighting on one side, and the forces of evil were fighting on the other side, and it looked like the forces of evil had won, but then at the last minute, God sort of pulled an ace from up his sleeve and rose the Lord from the dead again, and they got them at this sort of 11th hour, at the very last minute, when it looked like everything was lost, the battle turned. But that is not the resurrection of Jesus. The resurrection of Jesus Christ was planned and known from the beginning of time. This was not some last-minute rug pull. The resurrection was an expected resurrection. It was foretold by Jesus himself, actually. At least twice in Luke, he has told the disciples about it. In chapter 9, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. And then again in Luke 18, he takes the twelve and he says to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. So the resurrection was an expected resurrection to the Lord. And in fact, it was an expected resurrection, the Lord says, based on the whole of the Old Testament scripture. When the psalmist says, I will not leave your soul in death, I will not leave your soul in Sheol, that is a promise that the Messiah would be resurrected. So the resurrection of Jesus was an expected resurrection. I wonder how that applies to us today. Uh, Back in 1942 and 1943 were very dark hours over Europe. Western Europe had essentially been overrun by Nazi Germany and the Allies had been beaten back, France and and, uh, Britain had been beaten back to England in retreat. And they knew that they were going to have to attack again and so they planned what we now know as the D-Day landings, Operation Overlord. Perhaps you've seen Saving Private Ryan and seen it so vividly uh, pictured for us. But that is not something that was done on the spur of the moment. The planning that went into that operation was meticulous, probably unlike anything that had been planned before. From the year, even two years before, they practiced the landing. They planned the craft. They picked the location. They sent out spies to spread misinformation about where the location would be, Nothing about that operation was left to chance. It was all meticulously planned from long before the first boat left the harbor. And I wonder how you see your life in this world. Perhaps you see it a bit as left to chance. You as the beneficiary or the victim of chance events that have happened to you. Or perhaps you're someone who thinks that at the 11th hour, you'll always pull it out of the bag. You'll always think of something. You'll always be able to deliver somehow. Maybe that's been your approach to life. Well, God cares far too much about you to have left the fate of your life to that. God has planned the way for you to be forgiven and restored to your relationship with Him meticulously from before time itself. And He has woven the events of your life together, woven the events of your individual life together to bring you under the sound of His good news, of His love for you and plan for redemption. God has not left your redemption to chance. And the confidence that we have knowing that God has planned and is in control helps us as well in this life because it gives us confidence in the face of death. Because the other reason it's so important to know that the resurrection of Jesus was an expected resurrection is because it gives us confidence expecting another resurrection, doesn't it? Our own. Peter says, "'Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead.'" We've thought, as I've said already this year, about the confident offer of hope beyond death that the Lord Jesus offers. And now we can really understand how he makes that offer. And perhaps you're sitting here this evening, older, frailer, feeling the weakness of your body, feeling as slowly bits of it stop working, feeling your energy levels slowly slip away, Maybe you're a younger person sitting here, but you've been given a life-altering diagnosis. Your body is not going to work the way you had always thought it would. It is going to let you down. Maybe you've even been given a life-limiting diagnosis. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is your hope. The hymn writer says, I know that my Redeemer lives and on the earth again will stand. I know His promise never fails yet I see him by and by. So as you're sitting at home tonight or lying in the hospital bed or sleep deserts you in the long hours of the night, as you feel the weakness of your body, as a follower of Jesus, you can take comfort in confidently knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us into his presence. The Christian faith is one that affirms the goodness of creation and the goodness of the body. God's plan for us is not to release us from our bodies, but to transform us spiritually and to unite us with a physical body in which we will dwell for all eternity. Our own bodies resurrected again, just as the Lord Jesus was. Jesus wasn't raised bodily for His body to then sort of dissipate after the ascension and neither will that be the case for us. So let that thought sink in for you this evening. This body that you're sitting in right now on that pew is the one that you will live in for all of eternity. Transformed, made new, sore joints working freely, tired eyes seeing clearly, mind transformed to be in tune with the Spirit. But just as the Lord's body was his own, so will ours be. Those feet on the floor in front of you will walk the streets of eternity. Those feet. The Lord is redeeming his creation, and he is redeeming us along with it. So the resurrection was a physical resurrection. The resurrection was an expected resurrection. Finally, the Lord makes clear that the resurrection needs to be a proclaimed resurrection as well. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. So if you notice, the Lord says that all of Scripture has said these three things, that the Christ will suffer and die, be raised again, and those two are done, but there's one more element, and he leaves that one with the disciples, that it will be proclaimed starting in Jerusalem, but through all nations on earth. It says the message is this, the message is repentance. Repentance is this biblical idea of a change in our thinking, of a reorientation. So it's not just turning away from something that was bad, but it's also a turning to something, a deliberate realigning of yourself so you're not just turning away from an old way of life but also an old way of thinking about God maybe a way of thinking about how you approach God and turning to him and embracing him in faith and listening to how God wants to relate to us and forgiveness forgiveness that allows us to come into a relationship with God because the barrier to that relationship is gone and that message is proclaimed in his name Jesus is building his church. His church is not a social enterprise. We're not all members of a club in which we decide what the rules are and who's in and who's out. This is a church that Jesus is building in his name. And finally, as he makes clear to the disciples, that this is a message not just for them, not just for Jerusalem, but for the whole world, for every tribe and tongue and nation. And he leaves that with the disciples. Luke, of course, highlights that because Luke is writing to a Gentile reader, someone who's not from the Jewish people. And he wants him to understand that this message is for him, just as it was for them, and just as it is for you and me this evening. Something changed in the disciples. Something changed those men. If you read how they behaved, as we have over the last couple of weeks, in the run-up to the Lord's crucifixion after the Lord's arrest, and then you look at what happens at the end of their lives. As Tim told us this morning, probably all bar one killed, murdered, martyred for being Christians. Peter crucified upside down. Thomas killed with a spear in India, and so it goes on. Something changed in those disciples The death and resurrection of Jesus changed something in them. And I think it changed it for two reasons. First of all, they knew the message was real. They had seen the Lord risen from the dead and they knew it was real. And they were prepared to give their lives for it. But secondly, they knew that death was no longer the end. Giving their lives to the Lord on this earth no longer held the fear that it might once have for them. Because having seen the Lord pass through death and back to life again, the resurrection gave them confidence to take the message of Jesus across the world that they inhabited, whatever the cost to them was. And that commission that the Lord gave to the disciples has cascaded down every generation of the church as the gospel has moved outwards across the globe, just as it did through ancient missionaries like St. Patrick, down through the great age of Victorian missions, on through people like Amy Carmichael and Jim Elliott to the generation of our own missionaries, and it has now come to us. Who will take that message across the globe today? How will we support those who are already doing it? People like the Hattons, who are taking the gospel to those who have never heard it before. How do we enable the training and the equipping and the sending of God's people from other parts of the world to the unreached people in their localities? And yes, perhaps, who among ourselves will go as well? The message will be preached in His name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So the resurrection was a physical resurrection, the resurrection was an expected resurrection, and the resurrection must be a proclaimed resurrection. So as we close, we come to those last verses, 51 to 53, when the Lord leads them out to Bethany, and he blesses them, and he parts from them, and he's carried physically up in heaven and beyond their sight. And that ascension of the Lord Jesus draws that period of the Lord's earthly ministry to a close. And as an aside, it also emphasizes the physical nature of the resurrection, doesn't it? If the Lord had just been appearing as some sort of a ghostly projection, he could have just stopped doing that. But it was the fact that the Lord was physically raised from the dead. He had to physically leave earth. And so that again underlines the physical nature of the resurrection. that draws the time of the Lord's ministry on earth to a close. Luke had started his account way back in chapter 1, way back 18 months ago, as Will reminded us, with Zachariah in the temple working as a priest. And look where it ends tonight, with the disciples back in the temple blessing God. But in those intervening 34 years, everything had changed through the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Luke writes a sequel to this book called The Acts of the Apostles, and it tells us what the disciples do next. And he recaps the Lord's ascension in chapter 1 of that book. And after the Lord ascends, two angelic figures appear to the disciples, and they say, why do you stand looking at the sky? This same Jesus who has gone will come again. Those of us who follow the Lord Jesus today look expectantly to the sky for that moment, we long for his return, for an end to the brokenness and to the suffering that permeates this world. And so as we close this evening, in the light of that, you have a question to answer, the same question that we started with. What is the point of the resurrection for you? What does it mean for you? There is no question that the events surrounding the life and death of Jesus Christ transformed human history. Whatever you think about them, they absolutely altered the course of human history. I wonder as you reflect on them this Easter weekend, will you allow them to change your personal history as well? As the reality of the historical resurrection of Jesus Christ sinks in, you will have to ask yourself that question what does this resurrection mean for me? Where is Jesus this strange Easter day, not lost in our locked churches anymore than he was sealed in that dark sepulcher? The locks are loosed, the stone is rolled away, and he is up and risen long before. Alive, at large, and making his strong way into the world he gave his life to save. No need to seek him in his empty grave. We all have a happy and blessed Easter.